Fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now experience the taste and smell of fresh manna. Today, you will be listening to Corey Herthel, pastor of Grand Rapids Central and Lowell Riverside Fellowship Seventh-day Adventist Churches. And now, here's Pastor Corey. Happy Sabbath, everyone. It's good to be here with you this morning, as always. And just looking forward to digging into God's Word a little bit more. We're on the fourth part of our series of Revelations Overcomers. I don't know about you. But I really love to study the book of Revelation. Amen? All right. Glad to get a few amens on that. It's a great book. It's a beautiful book about, as John said, things which must shortly take place. And of course, some of these things have taken place, haven't they? And we're in the midst of them taking place, and we still have a ways to go, but we know that things are happening. And we can see this, and... We're looking through the seven churches that deal with these timelines, this history, really, of God's people and the church and the things that took place. And today, we're looking at our fourth church, and that begins here in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18, the church of Thyatira. I don't know about you, but as I've studied through this particular church, I say, Lord, please help me not to be like this. In my Bible, I use the New King James Version. It's just the one that I'm used to and enjoy. But I like how in the New King James Version of the Bible, you have these subcontext headings in theological terms. We call these little context within chapters, pericopes. And so you have this pericope here, and you have right above it a little subtitle for that particular pericope. And it says in my Bible, the corrupt church. That doesn't sound like a place we want to be, does it? How many of you enjoy the feeling of getting and owning a new car. It doesn't necessarily mean a brand new, like this year model, just off the press, but a new to you at least car. How many of you enjoy that? Okay, a few of us. I've always enjoyed that. I've always been kind of a car person. And there was a time where every just a little bit I would just trade and get something different. And I slowed down once I came into full-time ministry. I stopped doing that. <laughs> you don't have the freedom to do that as much in full-time ministry. But I've always enjoyed just getting something different, a newer vehicle, something newer than what I've had. I don't typically buy brand new vehicles. I usually buy something that's been lightly used so that you get some of that depreciation taken off, right? But still, when you get a vehicle that's new or new to you, at least for me and most people that I have encountered, when you get a new vehicle, you're very particular how you treat the vehicle. Would you agree? Like, I know how I've been in the past that I get a new vehicle and I'm just wanting to wash it every other day and I'm wanting to vacuum it out and I'm wanting to dust the dashboard and all of the areas that seem to collect dust. And I feel like 
for some reason, my vehicles are always a dust magnet. It's like I can never keep up with that. One time had a friend of mine riding in the vehicle with me, and he looked at it and he said, Corey, there is so much dust on your dashboard right now, the Lord could breathe the breath of life into it, and a man would pop out. <laughs> and so ever since I was told that, I try to be a little more conscientious, and especially now the interior of my vehicle is black, and those black interiors, as nice as they are, boy, they like to show off the dust, don't they? But you know, when you first get that vehicle, you're very meticulous with that vehicle. You're careful where you park it. You try not to get into tight spaces because you don't want dings and dents and scratches. I know the first time you're driving down the road and that rock hits your windshield and you just cringe because it's putting marks and corrupt things, if you will, on that paint job or in the glass or wherever, things that don't belong there. But over time, it seems, and I'm guilty of this too, after that novelty of that new car has worn off, it doesn't have that, that almost phony new car smell. You realize one of my churches I pastored was a church that had many, many scientists and chemists. I pastored the Midland Church. So a lot of those folks are Dow employees and chemists and PhDs and things that are way above my head. And we got to talking about the new car smell one time, and my head elder says to me, yeah, that's really just phony. It doesn't have to smell that way. They actually put chemical compounds into the interior that will waft up from the interior to give that smell because people like that smell. Isn't that interesting? It's all marketing. So the new car smell is actually something that they have scientifically created to appeal to you. That's okay. I like it still. Even though I know that, I still like it. You go through the car wash now, and they have new car smell air freshener. And so we like that smell. But once that's worn off and kind of gone away and taken on your scent, or whatever scent, you know, it just kind of loses that illustrious attraction that it had when you first got it. And you're like, nah, I'm eating my bean burrito from Taco Bell, and a little bit falls out. Well, no big deal. Right? You spill over your drink in the floorboard. Well, I'll get to it in a bit. You know, it's just not quite the same. And little by little, you allow the vehicle to just kind of take on signs of age and wear and tear and all those types of things. And it's not as immaculate and pristine as it once was. You see, when I read about this church that Jesus is dealing with in Thyatira, it seems to me like that's kind of like it was for them. Like maybe at first things were okay and God's word was guarded and his truth was accepted and the movement of the Holy Spirit was followed, but then something happens. Let's take a look at this church together. If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, Revelation chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 18 together. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire. Now, when I think of eyes like a flame of fire, what does fire do? It burns through things, right? If you take a piece of paper and you hold it over an open flame, even if it's, say, you have a candle burning here and you hold the paper up long enough, what happens to the center of the paper? Burns right through. So in other words, Jesus can see through anything. Amen? 
He's got these eyes like the flame of fire. He can cut through and he can see. There's nothing that is hidden from Jesus. So no motivation of your heart can be hidden from Jesus. You can hide your motives from your friends and your family and your church family and your co-workers, etc., the people that are around you. You can put on a mask. You can pretend to be something else. But Jesus sees right through it, doesn't He? His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished or fine brass. And this is what Jesus says. And it sounds great here in verse 19. I know your works. Love, service, faith, and your patience. And as far as your works, the last are more than the first. Stopping right there, it sounds great, doesn't it? This is a wonderful church to be a part of. Love and service and faith. Don't we want to have those things in the church? Sounds great. And here we have Jesus. It just, here's what I love about the character and the mind of Jesus. Is Jesus always starts by looking for the good. What do you say? I think of John 3.17. We know John 3.16 very well. And oftentimes we recite that forward and backwards and we can do it in our sleep and with you know, our eyes closed, whatever. But I think John 3.17 should always be quoted with John 3.16 to give it its context. Because he talks about, in John 3.16, recite it with me, church, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then Jesus goes on in verse 17 to say what? For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be what? Saved. And that shows us the heart of God. He's looking for the good. Amen? Jesus didn't come here to fault find and to do everything He could to keep you out of the kingdom. That is the opinion, I think, of some people, sadly. And that's what the devil wants people to believe. He wants people to be scared and insecure in their faith with Jesus. But Jesus says, I want you to be secure. The Bible says He's able to save to the uttermost because He ever lives to make intercession, right? So the Bible tells us a different story. It's not one where we should be scared of God. But as Paul says, we should constantly work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And we stop there and we say, well, that sounds a little scary. But the very next thing that Paul says, for it is God who works in you to will and to do His good pleasure. So the beauty is, yeah, there's work to be done, but guess what? You are incapable of doing the work. And so here Jesus talks about works. I know your works, love, service, faith, your patience, as far as the works of the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, he says in verse 20, and here it comes. So Jesus starts by commending and showing them, here's something good about you. Nevertheless, however, in spite of what I just told you, I do have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. There are two things being dealt with here. Number one is illicit relationship. We find, and we're going to look in another place in the Bible, where this same analogy is talked about. You'll look back in Hosea chapter 2. God uses this sort of sexual language, this sexual relationship language, 
to represent false and pagan practices among his people. You realize that? Why? Well, what is it that Jesus said? There's going to be people in the last days who will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not heal the sick in your name? Did we not do all these great things in your name? And Jesus said, I'm going to look at him and I'm going to say, yeah, you did all these works, but depart from me. I never knew you. Knew you. That word to know. You remember in Genesis, the account of creation, the story of Adam and Eve. It says Adam did what? He knew his wife Eve and they conceived and bore a son. So this word to know is an intimate know. Now, do we have a physical, intimate relationship with God? No. But physical intimacy between married partners is a symbol of the spiritual intimacy that God wants us to have with Him. You realize that? God wants to know us and to have an intimate, connected relationship. And so when there is this turning away, when people say, yes, I know what God has said. I know what God would have me to do. I know that God wants me to be surrendered and submitted to Him and allow His Spirit to lead. But I'm going to turn and do something against that. Well, God uses these harsh words. And He says it's like sexual immorality. And of course, we know based on Paul's writings, there was a lot of actual sexual immorality going on among God's people. But what happens? As soon as we turn our hearts off from Jesus, as soon as we shut off that influence of the Holy Spirit, then our behavior reflects that, doesn't it? We start doing things that we know are not good for us. Amen? Amen. However, when we do what God is calling us to do and live in that attitude of surrender to Jesus because we love Him, Well, guess what happens when we live in a fullness of surrender to Jesus? The Holy Spirit takes hold, and our habits and our behaviors change as a cause and effect of grace. Amen? That's the beauty. But here we have the cart being put before the horse, it seems. Let me make sure I'm doing this and this and this. The works. Yet, their works were meaningless because their relationship was null and void. You go off and you allow that woman Jezebel, and we know from 1 Kings 16 there at the end of the chapter, Jezebel was a woman who led a king of Israel. What was the king's name? Who was her husband? Ahab. Led Ahab to become, according to that particular pericope, beginning in verse 29 of 1 Kings 16 all the way to the end, It talks about King Ahab and his corruption. Who was King Ahab? What was his purpose? And what was he to be doing? Well, let's take a look. Why don't we? Go to 1 Kings with me. 1 Kings and chapter... What chapter did I tell you? 16. 1 Kings 16. And let's just take a look at this story briefly here. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri became king over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. I would not want that to be my legacy. What about you? I'd hate for some history book to be written 100 years from now and it says, yeah, Pastor Corey Herthel did more damage in the Michigan Conference than any pastor before him. 
Lord, please no. Take me out before then, right? And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, that he took as his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidonians. And he went and he served Baal, or Baal, if you want to say it in the Hebrew, and worshipped him. And then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Mercy alive. My friends, think about the king of Israel and who Israel was in this context. And how does that relate to us today as Christians? Obviously, there is no more, biblically speaking, literal Israel. Now, of course... There are people with the bloodline and lineage who are Israeli people. And through their bloodline, they connect to that. But from a spiritual standpoint, there is not a literal Israel anymore. Would you agree? It doesn't exist. You and I and anyone who accepts Jesus is Israel. What do you say? The Bible says, Galatians 3 and verse 29, if anyone is Christ's, then he is Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise. So we are Israel. We are Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. I'm one of them and so are you. Let's just praise the Lord. You know the song they sing? That's because we have Jesus. And Jesus said to those who could tie their lineage back to Abraham, well, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And they flipped out and wanted to stone him, right? And then Jesus said, yeah, well, before Abraham was, I am. And they went crazy. You're not even 50. How do you say this? Well, Abraham saw the promise of Jesus through that little activity that God called him to do to test his faith, right? Go up there and take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him for me. And then the Lord provided. This was an image of Christ to Abraham. But I digress. The whole purpose of Israel, that's you and me today, is to represent in a real way, in a biblical way, in a true way, what it looks like to be God's people. Amen? Isn't that what our goal is? Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? And that is what Israel was called to do. They were not to be this group of elitists with a king that just reigned over people politically or some other way. However, they were to be the evangelists to the world to take the gospel to the world. Amen? Of course, we see over and over again there was failure. And then that bleeds down through into the early church. And that leads us up back to our text where we were reading here in Revelation chapter 2. Nevertheless, Jesus says, verse 20, Revelation 2, verse 20, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants. Well, why would Jesus use that analogy of Jezebel? Well, what did Jezebel do? She led King Ahab away from his God and led him to some other false system, which then led to all sorts of problems. And when we allow corruption into our lives in this manner and allow evil influence into our lives, well, 
the influence of hell breaks loose all over the place, and that's what we see, and that's what Jesus is dealing with here. And he says, and eat things sacrificed to idols. Again, idol worship. Idol worship. Turning our allegiance to something other than God. And he says in verse 22, Indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the church shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. So the works are very much an outflow of what's going on in the mind and the heart. You see that? Jesus says, I search the minds and hearts. I will give according to your works. The works are simply a reflection of what's going on internally. You agree? Now do you, I say unto the rest in Thyatira, as many who do not have this doctrine, this teaching, who have not known the depths of Satan as they, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast to what you have until I come. And then Jesus, he begins with a word of commendation as always. He gives them their rebuke. And then he ends with a message of hope. What does Jesus say? And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, it's not your works, but it's whose works? Jesus' works. To him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. As also I have received from my Father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Turn with me to Revelation 17 just momentarily. Here we have an image of prophecy of a corrupt system that would come along and look at how God deals with this. How through His Word, through His angel messenger, how this corruption is described. Again, it is all about relationship. Because if we have our relationship in order, Jesus says, you did this and this and this, but you didn't know me, so depart. But he says, if we have our relationship in order and we're connected to Christ in that intimate way, then the works proceed out of that as a natural cause and effect. Amen? If our works are done from the wrong motive, it's useless. And that's kind of what was happening there in Thyatira. Yeah, you have love and service and faith and all these things, but then... Your heart's in the wrong place. You're allowing corruption in. You're going off and doing these other things. And so we go on here to Revelation chapter 17. Listen to how John describes this. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and he talked with me. He said, come and I'll show you the judgment of the great, what's the word here? Harlot who sits on many waters. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now as I read these words and I parallel them to what we just read in Revelation chapter 2, I see similarities. Do you? He's using this word like fornication and committing adultery and all these things. And then he also says that the kings of the earth committed this illicit affair and this illicit relationship. The leaders of the earth had an illicit relationship. And Jesus just said in Revelation 2, those who commit adultery with her will have this problem. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, 
which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her head was a name written, Mystery, Babylon, Confusion, right? The Great, the Mother of Harlots, and the Abominations of the Earth. And here, out of this group, should have been God's people leading the charge, living for Him, teaching of His righteousness and His truth and His mercy and His goodness and His love and His grace and His desire to save the human race. But instead, what we have is a system of human corruption that has gone in and mingled the common with the sacred, that has gone in and twisted God's Word, that has gone in and created its own teachings rather than God's teachings, that has gone in and created all sorts of a system of works that have nothing to do with the relationship to Jesus and now has confused and made drunk the whole earth with this wine of this filthiness and fornication. What an awful description. John says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Here she's taking things that should belong to God and making them a mockery. You see, what happens when a little bit of corrupt influence is allowed in? The devil takes and runs with it and turns it into something filthy. But the devil knows just how to do it so that he mingles enough truth and enough positive things into it that it seduces and draws in people. But here we go. We get down to the next part of the vision here in Revelation chapter 18. And praise the Lord, even though the devil works through this corruption, this system to try to bring people down and to cause them to have a negative view of God and to cause them to think of God's character in a way that is not true. Instead, God prevails, not this harlot woman. Amen? Because John says, after these things, Revelation 18, verse 1, after these things I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice. And he said, Babylon the great is fallen. Is fallen. And has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. The merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. And this is what I love about Jesus, is that no matter how caught up and how messed up we can get, no matter how much the devil can try to drag us down a road which leads to destruction, Jesus comes along and says, Guess what? You are still my people. And He calls us to a higher plane and He begs for us to come out and to follow Him to the place that leads to everlasting life. Come out of her, My people, lest you share in her sins. It's interesting that even in this language, the sins that are being committed as a result of this corruption are not being imputed to the people that are stuck in the system. Isn't that interesting? Come out of her, My people, lest you share in her sins. And lest you receive of her plagues, for her sins have reached to heaven and to God, and He has remembered her iniquities. 
Jesus is saying, not one of my sheep has to be caught up in that mess. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep, they know my voice and nobody can pull them out of my hand. What do you say? And that's what Jesus is calling you and me and every one of his followers to be. It's to be his sheep. What did Jesus say to Peter there at the end before his ascension? Peter, do you love me? Yes, of course, Lord, you know these things. Why do you ask? Well, then do what? Feed my sheep. Why would Jesus say this three times? Jesus knew that the devil, like a wolf, was coming to devour the sheep. To lead them astray. To teach them things about God that are not true. To take his attributes of tyranny and his attributes of wickedness and try to put those things on God and confuse the entire Christian world. Jesus says, you go and feed my sheep. You show them the kind of shepherd that I am. And God is calling us to do that. You see, we can say we love somebody and we can do lip service. We can go out and feed the poor and we can clothe the naked and we can do all of these great things. But if we do not love Jesus, that's why he says to Peter three times, do you love me? If we do not have that relationship, he will say to us, depart, I never knew you. In Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 343, we have this beautiful quote, one of the best quotes I think I've ever found in Spirit of Prophecy writings. And she says, let no one take the limited, narrow position, now listen to this, that any of the works of man can help in the least possible way to liquidate the debt of his transgression. This is a fatal deception. If you would understand it, you must cease haggling over your pet ideas. I love that she uses pet ideas. And with humble hearts, survey the atonement. Look at the sacrifice that Jesus laid up for you. If you look at that with a genuine heart and a spirit of surrender, and you think and contemplate about what Jesus has done for you and what he continues to do for you day by day and with each passing moment, you will be drawn to the foot of the cross. Your heart will be dashed upon that rock. You will be broken and mended by the great physician. She goes on to say this matter is so dimly comprehended that, listen to this, thousands upon thousands claiming to be sons of God are children of the wicked. When why? Because they will depend upon their own works. Mercy. God always has demanded good works because the law demands it. But because man placed himself in sin where his good works were useless and valueless, Jesus' righteousness alone can avail. Christ is able to save to the uttermost because he ever lives to make intercession for us. All that man can possibly do towards his own salvation. Are you ready? Here's the big climax. We want to overcomplicate this matter so much. It's so easy for us to make it difficult. For some reason, I, sometimes I listen to Christians and it's like they want to make it hard. I don't understand it. Listen to this. The only thing that man can possibly do toward his own salvation is to accept the invitation. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. No sin can be committed by man for which satisfaction has not been met on Calvary. What do we say, church? 
Thus, the cross in earnest appeals continually proffers to the sinner a thorough expiation. And I tell you, friends, when we can grasp this about Jesus and we can put our focus upon our relationship to Him and allow His mercy, His goodness, and His truth to come into our lives and to saturate our minds and our hearts and take over our beings, guess what? Your works and your behaviors will change. Why? Because you are so deeply in love with your Savior that you could not imagine not living for Him. Focus on Jesus. God is calling every one of us to show the world what it looks like to live for Jesus. To have joy in our hearts. To exude the image of Christ in all that we say and do in our deportment and how we treat one another. How we think and how we react and how we speak and the words we choose. And all of these things should be done in such a way that it is attractive to the thirsty soul. What do you say? That others will see that. What did Jesus say? I love that statement in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light so shine that others will see your works and not be amazed at how good and holy and pious you are? No. But they will see the living Christ in you, and that will draw them to the foot of the cross, and they will glorify, Jesus says, will glorify your Father in heaven. Friends, I don't know about you, but that is my goal. Amen? I want that to be our goal as a church. Lord, let Jesus live in me in such a way that people see it on my face. They hear it in my tone of voice. They sense it in just how I carry myself. Let people see Jesus in me. And let my heart be guarded. Don't allow those little pebbles and stones to fly up from the devil and put nicks and dents in my paint job. Amen? Keep me shielded from that, Lord. Don't allow me to go off some tangent and follow the devil down a rabbit hole. Don't allow me to get caught up in some false ideology that leads me down a path of death because it tears me away from the umbrella of God's grace. But instead, let me be guarded. Let me stand for God's Word. Let me not twist it. Let me live in it and abide in it and have Christ abide in me. And Lord, in the end, apart from all the mess that goes on in this world, let me be one of Revelations. Say it with me, friends. Overcomers. You have been listening to Corey Herthel, pastor of Grand Rapids Central and Lowell Riverside Fellowship Seventh-day Adventist Churches. If you enjoyed this sermon, why not visit one of his churches this coming Sabbath or a church near you listed on strongtowerradio.org. You will find the Grand Rapids Central Church at 100 Sheldon Avenue, southeast in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and their church service begins at 11 a.m. Or visit the Lowell Riverside Fellowship Church located at 10300 Virginia Street in Lowell, Michigan, and their church service begins at 10.30 a.m. This program has been a Strong Tower Radio production.